Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week on Seneca, I am delighted to welcome Lulu Chen, a Hong Kong-based reporter for Bloomberg who has been covering the tech beat in China for over a decade. She is the author of a terrific book about one of China's most important and most successful internet companies, Tencent, best known certainly among Seneca listeners for its hugely popular, truly indispensable super app WeChat or Weixin, but also for its massive portfolio of game companies and, and other investments around the internet and around the world, including many of China's most popular online to offline services, and for the still very, very popular chat messenger QQ, uh, also for its music streaming services and its online literature and, and much else. With a market cap uh, yesterday of 425 billion US dollars, it is easily one of the most valuable internet companies in the world. The book is called Influence Empire, the inside story of Tencent and China's tech ambition. And for me, at least, it's right up there among the very best books that I've read about the internet in China offering, as it does, a great historical account of the travails and triumphs of China's tech entrepreneurs from their very early efforts through through the boom years, really, and uh, right up until the recent regulatory tightening. Read the book and you will learn a ton about Tencent, but also about its competitors and the epic struggles among them. It was a real pleasure to read, and I highly recommend you pick up a copy. Lulu, congrats on the book and welcome to Seneca. Great to be here, Kaiser. Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful to have you. So, you know what I, I want to do? I want to start by giving listeners a sense for just 
how big and how vital and how important Tencent is today. Uh, what would you tell people who aren't already familiar with the company in order to give them a sense of just how vast the company is and how central its products are to the lives of ordinary Chinese people? Well, for Tencent, I would break down its business largely into three chunks for people who don't understand what it is. There's WeChat that you mentioned. So that goes into the social media, uh, instant messaging, social media component. Um, WeChat is for mobile. And then during the desktop era, which is where Tencent got its first start, was QQ. Right. And then apart from that, you have the gaming sector, which actually generates or at one point generated most of its revenue, which is why it got so big and why investors love it. And then there's the future business cloud. And also at one point, FinTech was on the rising trajectory. That's come down a little bit after the crackdowns in the past two years. Largely, I would say you can break it down from a revenue contribution point of view into these three sectors. But on the sidelines, it also had this vast investment component where they mm-hmm. were actively seeding and uh, backing at its peak more than 800 startups and companies. And many of those investments uh, generated very handsome returns for the company as well. Wow. 800 investments at its peak. That's insane. And, you know, it's so central to life that like during the pandemic, of course, basically it was it would have been impossible to get around without Tencent because it was you know, wasting was like where your health code showed up, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's hard for people to understand what it means to live without WeChat in China. And, um, you know, I talk about how people sacrifice privacy for the sake of convenience using WeChat. And well, a common response I get from people who use Facebook is we do the same with Facebook. Mm-hmm. But it's on, <laughs> it's on a much more intimate level because this app is tracking your location, all your conversations with um most often in China, the closest people around you, your business contacts, your work contacts. Uh, and then on top of that, you're using it for payment. Every transaction at the at the convenience store, what kind of milk product you buy in the morning. And then you're using the mini apps, the light apps on top for services like unlocking bicycles in Beijing or hailing a cab. So the data that they have is just so much more well-rounded and and more conclusive of who you are as a person. So, Lulu, I, I remember when you joined the Tech Beat way back when I was still at Baidu, and you were always one of the tech journalists, so I thought really got it. So you started covering tech back in 2012, if I remember correctly. And you talk a little bit about that decision in the book, how you moved to tech from the finance beat up. That wasn't a decision that just anyone would have made. What drew you specifically to tech and kept you on that beat for more than a decade. Oh, I remember those days. I was a spring chicken in the tech beat, and you're already this established person in, huh. in China internet industry. Also on the sidelines, you were very famous for your music. So I I completely could not fathom why, how a famous music person was also like a very big figure in the Chinese internet industry at the time. Huh. I, I think like uh, part of it was coincidence, but I think what helped me get a job at the time was because I grew up with uh, these products, using these products. So it just helped me understand where they were coming from and how they matter to people's lives more uh, as a second nature instead of coming it from the outside. Yeah. 
Yeah, that comes across in your book. I mean, you talk about you know how integral these things were in your life, and when you talk about these games, you actually play these games. I mean, you're you know it's 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 what gives people a real sense of the uh, you know your your intimate familiarity with the products, which is which is super super important. Uh, but but back then, I remember uh, you used to lament, and many tech reporters told me how difficult it was to cover Tencent specifically. You know, a lot of people told me that it was really hard to get access to their senior management, how little they would speak with the, the, the press generally. So was this book based mainly on reporting that you'd already done in your many years at Bloomberg? Or did you do a whole new round of interviews at Tencent as you started to put the book together? Or, or how did you go about this? Yeah, so a lot of it was based on reporting that I, I gathered over the years. I consider it as a reporter's notebook kind of compilation for many parts. Part of it was to give myself closure as well, because after all those years, I wanted the long form narrative <laughs> is quite gratifying in many ways for reporters. Yeah. And then on top of that, I, I had to fill in gaps here and there and to make sure that there were there were stories that I didn't manage to report. And so I hoped to achieve that through this book and get access to people I wasn't able to. And I think to me, like there are regrets writing this book. There was so much I wanted to do and people who I wanted to interview, which I couldn't because COVID happened. Right. And there's a lot of history in the books, but I tried to make like the forward-looking section also more relevant to what's happening on the ground right now because things have also changed so much. So in the years since I left China, did Tencent get any easier to report on? I mean, did they start maybe, you know, making themselves more accessible to journalists at all? <laughs> it's uh, culturally, it's really, really interesting. You know, at the very top, you have these Wall Street foreign educated ivy league educated i would say bankers who's running the show and then yeah. you know they're We're talking helping about martin lau and, Mar and, and martin about, and james yeah. mitchell yeah james mitchell right and they're working there alongside pony his co-founding team actually i think most of them took a smaller role after the company grew like from the phase where the company was growing from zero to one they were all there but once the company got from one to a hundred I think that's when the, the Wall Street professionals stepped in. Right. But if you go and talk to people on the ground at the company, the average age of staff at this company is around 25 years old. Wow. People who've never left the country and they're hardworking, but also it's, there's a disconnect between the, the, uh, the, the staff and also the management. And that's what makes this company very grassroots, bottom up and a structural level. But also if you try to try to find out what's happening at the company from a top down level or from the, from the, uh, investor relations department or from a senior executive level, it's quite hard to penetrate. Very different from Alibaba, which is more market friendly and prone to chat with investors and also um, the media. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, we'll go more into the culture of the company in just a little bit, but let's talk about some of the personalities of the really important figures at Tencent, starting, of course, with Ma Huateng, with Pony Ma himself. Can you you do kind of a potted biography of him and talk about his his personality, his reputation, his leadership style, and and that sort of thing? So Ma Huateng 
many people call him a geek because he was a programmer and he was one of those very studious students who actually was top of his class during the university years and known for hacking into their university computer systems. <laughs> I think for his family background, I'm not sure how closely this is correlated, but his father comes from an interesting background because he does have a semi-state-owned state uh, company background, and mm-hmm. he was a senior management at, this, at, at the state-owned company. So maybe some of that helped impart um, corporate wisdom on Ama Hua Tong while he was growing up. And they, they didn't grow up in the northern part, didn't grow up in the political capital in, in China. So he was born in Hainan province, which was known for its real estate bubble um, mm-hmm. at the time and being more commercial and entrepreneurial. And then they moved to Shenzhen, which has now become the uh, Silicon Valley of China. Um, so that, that more relaxed atmosphere or environment probably was also conducive to him being entrepreneurial. And now, you know, he's kind of like the the face of China entrepreneurship at one point, one of the wealthiest people in China. But he's always maintained this very low profile kind of personality, very different from uh, Jack Ma, who is not related. Yeah, no, not related and not at all the same. I mean, he, Jack Ma is so flamboyant. Pony is super low key, right? I mean, you, you just never hear from him. I mean, he rarely gives public speeches. He, you know, he does public appearances. You know, he would go to you know the the round table, the the, the, the internet gathering in Hangzhou every year. But I mean, I've I've met him, but I I didn't ever get a read on the guy. I mean, he just seemed a total mystery to me always. According to people who know him quite well, he he actually can get quite. Uh, He's quite playful if, oh, if really? he, if, yeah, he can be, but he, he has, I guess he plays his cards quite close to his chest. So you, like most people would never say, see that side of him. Yeah. 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 Do you have any stories about personal encounters with him? I mean, did you ever see anything interesting? Yeah. So I remember there, there was this one year when the Hong Kong government was trying to attract investment for a greater Bay area. And it was mm. one of the few occasions where he, uh, I think I saw him drop his guard down. Maybe it was in he was in his element. He was surrounded by people who knew quite well, and he he was just talking on stage in this very relaxed manner. And at what point? I think the year was also very important. This was pre-crackdown and everything. Um, China was still on that very hopeful trajectory where you thought like entrepreneurs would take a, a larger role in economy and everything. Uh, and he brought up this point about jokingly about how if we bring investment into Greater Bay Area, we, we need to hold the like the officials and a government accountable to make sure that the money goes into the right places and the money is used effectively. And if if that doesn't happen, we need to accountability, accountability coming from him, who is so, so careful about everything that I'm saying so playfully at the time. I think it's just it's really like a, a different era compared with where where China internet is right now. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's it's we'll talk about the crackdown, you know, that began in November 2020. Uh, really, I guess that's that's when most people became aware of it when the 
would be Ant Financial IPO would have happened. <laughs> um, the more accessible and outward facing guy at Tencent has always been Martin Lau. And you described him, you know, he comes from a, a finance, a banking background. Uh, but give us a sense of what he's like and his own background. And you talk to him a lot more, I imagine. So I think on a on a wider spectrum, he's he's on the same same end of the spectrum as Pony, in the sense that he's also low key, guarded, very careful. His family background is also quite interesting. His parents actually went back to China as that wave of patriots who were going to help build China in the call for reviving modernization of China after the Communist Party took over, and then. In his own words, history happened, and they had to leave the country, and they were going to go to, I think it was, go, they were going to go to Pakistan to go meet up with his grandmother, but then they stopped by in Hong Kong, and then they just stayed on in Hong Kong. And then when he was growing up, his parents always taught him to be an engineer, which is what all Chinese parents tell kids to become, because as an engineer, you will always have a skill set and be able to feed yourself, whereas right. like the liberal arts subjects are always frowned upon. <laughs> so he he wanted to study rocket science, um, but then mm. um, when he went to the U.S., obviously that was not a possibility. So he uh, ch- chose computer science instead. But for for him, like I think the the family background makes a lot of sense in understanding who he is. You don't see a lot of, uh, well, for his era, there weren't that many Hong Kong bankers who were trilingual in Cantonese, Mandarin, and also English and understood Chinese private companies that well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which is what gave him a foothold into, into this company. There's a couple of other people that I want to talk about in a little bit. I want to bring them in, like Wang Xin and, and Zhang Xiaolong, uh, Alan Zhang. But uh, one other character that shows up in, in the book, and it's interesting because he's somebody I've known for a long time, but your book was the first time I've seen an actual account of his role in some pivotal moments. One was getting the Naspers deal. I'm talking about David Wallerstein, uh, who was a really young guy, just sort of an expat kicking around in, in, in Shenzhen, I guess, or, or somewhere in, in, in southern China. Now, when I see him, and I've seen him a couple of times in recent years, the only thing that we ever talk about is his alter ego. He calls himself Darwin, uh, and he is a beast of a guitar player, and he has some albums that he's recorded with some legendary musicians. I think, um, just just so we're clear on what the kind of uh, music we're talking about, it's, it's, it's sort of extreme chops-focused f- um, metal. It's like, uh, you know, let me show you how great all these players are on, on this record. So he's got like legendary musicians playing on his records now. I guess that's what you can do when, when you know, you've been a huge deal maker at, at Tencent and you've got just you know, all the money in the world. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> talk about this guy. I mean, he later on went on to make some of uh, the really, really big deals with game developers and, and, and publishers. Uh, but the, the first coup is with Naspers, which is a South African co- company. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you probably know Wallerstein better than than I do, given that you're so into music. <laughs> you know what Wallerstein made me realize? Uh, it's this famous saying that Jack Ma likes to throw around, which is don't be the best, but be the first. And he absolutely embodies that phrase because he yeah. was, he he went to Shenzhen 
out of all places when, you know, for expats, hanging in Beijing and Shanghai was already considered out there. <laughs> and he was hanging right. around in Shenzhen. And then I think like the approach that he took, which was to hang out and see what young people were doing in China back then, which is how he stumbled upon Tencent's QQ in these uh, right. smoke-filled Internet cafes, internet cafes, <laughs> internet cafes <laughs> with the uh, young people blood eyes bloodshot from playing online computer games. But he he noticed how all the uh, these people were using QQ at the time to communicate with each other. So he thought this was going to be a, a a huge thing. That that's really why Naspers has such a big stake in Tencent. In fact, they're the largest shareholder. It's, it's such a coincidence, but I think the approach he took was also, you know, very, very smart for, for yeah. Yeah, yeah. Genuine grassroots, you know, just, just get out there and, and see what people are actually using. It's kind of amazing. Um, and, you know, he's still now, he is the chief exploration officer for, for uh, Tencent. He's based in the Bay Area and Still does deals for them. That's uh, fascinating. 20, 20 plus years on. Um, like I said, there are a couple of other people that I want to bring in later. Uh, but first, I want to get some of your impressions of the. See, what's What's amazing about this is that you have seen the the whole sort of history of not just Tencent, but also you know the whole transformation of the Chinese internet sector while while covering tech. Um, these are massive transformations, including the way that the Chinese tech companies were perceived from the outside of China. Because when you started, you know, we all used to joke C to C meant copy to China, right? Uh, they still had this, you know, often quite well-deserved reputation as copycats. Uh, but just four years in, you know, by 2016, I think it had changed quite a bit, you know. Uh, can you talk about that change and whether and to what extent the reality matched the perception? Yeah, so... You know, before 2012, there is this watershed moment where you can see it happening around 2012 when before, even for Alibaba, they, they were big and Tencent was big, but it was very confined. And also they like they couldn't monetize their products to the extent that they're monetizing their products as as they're doing now. And I think the mobile Internet age is when way when they had this chance to leapfrog their U.S. counterparts and really excel at the UI design and also incorporate a lot of stuff that U.S. companies and investors were not were not doing. And in many ways, those designs on WeChat and Taobao, for example, have exceeded or or is um, more advanced than what their counterparts are doing in the U.S. Part of it is IP rights issues because in the U.S. a lot of companies couldn't get away with just incorporating every function there is out there, which is why in China you have these super apps. They went into a virtuous cycle where because there were more users, they had to compete faster update and make small tweaks constantly on a weekly basis and that in turn generated more users brought in more revenue and you know the the companies became very vigilant in tracking new trends and user behavior habits which made these apps so easy to use and and so powerful yeah yeah for sure 
one of the really big changes that took place not long after you started covering Tencent uh, was that they went from, I mean, it wasn't just Tencent, but also Ali. They went from being a company that was notorious for cloning and crushing, as we used to say, clone and crush. Uh, I mean, it was, it, Tencent was so notorious that China Computer World actually ran this very famous cover story that had, it said, oh, which I don't think I can translate politely, um, but it's kind of a Chinese, I believe, swear word that just means, you know, very bad. Let's say it's like those who lie down with dogs. <laughs> anyway. uh, so, yeah, and it had a picture of their very famous penguin mascot. It was it had like knives and axes stuck in it. Uh, very famous. But but they went very quickly to becoming this aggressive investor where they were no longer just doing the clone and crush model where they would see an idea, a long, young fledgling company, and either... Um, and then they would just just copy its idea, I mean, shamelessly, and then defeat it because you know they could they could you know push it out just more aggressively. Um, no, no more of that. They suddenly started becoming an investor. How did this happen? What was the what was the the, the pivotal moment there? Well, the the moment on the magazine that was one for sure. They also brought in these after I think there was so much criticism on the street against them. They brought in this group of experts or people's opinion who they matter who matter to them, uh-huh. and they had this conference conference of the gods they called it, and <laughs> all the, all they did was critique. Tencent and its behavior, and it was so shocking to management. They really went into a kind of a self-reflect. You, you know, they really did some thinking in terms of their ident- identity and their strategy. Um, and not after that, there were two major deals, um, acquisitions, uh, investments that that they made were that were quite symbolic of their strategy, um, and kind of. Mm. It, it 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 was like the uh, a signaling to the the startup community out there. One was their investment in Sogo, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a competitor for Baidu. Right. Uh, so Baidu was number one, and Sogo, I believe, at the time was number two. Uh, That's right. Or or was Sihu number two? So Sogo might have been number. I think, three. No, Sogo Sogo first. Oh, yeah. Sogo was number two. Sogo was was the search engine that that Charles Zhang Sohu had actually launched, but then it became an independent. Yeah. Search so there engine. there was always a little bit of jockeying, but they invested in Sogo, and then the other deal I think was JD.com that was quite symbolic because. Uh, they actually folded their own e-commerce units into JD and to the outside and and also internally, it signaled that if, first of all, if you fail as a business, their e-commerce business was not doing that well. So if you, if right. the, if you as a unit don't do well, we could shut you down or sell you off at every, any given point, just because we're a big company doesn't mean that you have your job security is there, right? So that was signaling to the internally. And then signaling to the outside was that it was willing to invest and then also um, it was comfortable to just, you know, focus on the core, which was being a connector of information and people and platforms. And it would let go of a lot of the other verticals it was competing in at a loss and not very successfully. So e-commerce was one of right, them. Right, right. Search engine was another. 
so they then went on to become a really aggressive investor. And, and I, I remember watching this and they were doing so many deals. And I was you know, working at Baidu at the time. And Baidu uh, was very, very slow and very conservative. Uh, you made some very unflattering, but alas, all too true comparisons in your book uh, to the way that, that Baidu was doing. Because all three of the big companies back then, the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, started to, to to really look at a lot of deals and, and were trying to do them. Uh, we, you know, Baidu was, was relatively slow, for sure. Uh, talk about the, the strategy uh, from Tencent and, and how it relates to the culture of the company itself. So I remember talking to companies that were getting offers from Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent at the same time. And this was during the years when capital was so abundant, the interest in investing in startups was immense. Also, it was right before the the leap to mobile internet. So uh, investing in the right companies really mattered at the time. And it was all about um, investing in products that were of high frequency usage. Like ride hailing was the typical example where a person would right. would have to click on the button and tap and use it. Uh, at least I don't know if you if you have to make a trip, then you'd be tipping and tapping on it for three times a day, right? Um, and it was about finding those those gems to ensure that people were using your payment system and making sure that people would want to use your mobile app. And I think for Tencent, they were super fast in giving term sheets and also very militant (laughs) in ensuring that the founders wouldn't backtrack. Baidu, Robin was very careful with his budget. (laughs) And so, and it's interesting, there were characters that they took they brought into place as well. Like Richard Pong is one of the person I, I profile in the story. And he mm-hmm. he was known for being, he's, though it's funny that the head of uh, investing in M&A at Baidu and Tencent were actually close friends, um, but they were also <laughs> competing for the same deals. Richard was very competitive. And in the book, I mentioned this story where he actually locks the founder of Didi in a room just to make sure that he signs the contract with him. Um, but that's what it was like for, for making deals at the time. And you would sign term sheets and contracts over napkins and make deals within you know, 24 hours. At one point, um, for the mergers that I talk in, in the book, um, they were moonlighting at Richard Liu's wedding and hashing out these deals. The founder of JD, yeah. and he got married somewhere like in Indonesia or in Thailand or something, or Bali or something. Right? Yeah, yeah, one of those beautiful destination weddings. Uh, but on the <laughs> sidelines, you had these bankers and top executives moonlighting and hashing out deals at his wedding. So speed really, really mattered. And the fact that I think the Baidu lost on some of those pretty important key deals is what differentiated and and kind of put them in a different tier or put Alibaba and Tencent in a, in a different tier. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at the time, I mean, just, just it, it felt like we could always offer a really, really clear explanation of why this particular deal you know, had to do with our core business and how it, 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 there were obvious synergies. And, and it, it all made sense to, to the people who I was talking to. But that, and then, you know, a lot of the, the ones that Ali and, and Tencent were making seemed so, you know, irrelevant to their core business. And 
Uh, it seems like they were throwing money away, but you know, it turned out they were right. It's, it's probably, you know, at the time, because we were in this upward cycle, right? And it was the transitioning to a different platform. So for them, they, they kind of used the machine gun approach, which is, I mean, Sequoia would, Sequoia China would argue against this and say that was not their approach. But it was a 500 startups um, approach, which is an upward cycle, upcycle, you machine gun everything and see what sticks at the end because you have so much money and you don't know what's going to work. Yeah. Ah, well, they turned out to be right. So, you know, I think this, this really reflects a lot about the company's cultures as well. Uh, so I want to ask you about that. I mean, I had always heard really scary stories about how cutthroat things were at, at Tencent. And there's this possibly apocryphal story about the creation of WeChat, Weixin, uh, for example. I don't know if you'd heard it because, you know, you seem to kind of allude to it, but you never quite spell out the version. There were multiple, the, the version I heard was that there were multiple teams, three teams, working on this product. And that one team, you know, the team that actually, you know, delivered the the chosen product would uh, you know, get lavish promotions. The second team would keep its jobs. The third team, bye-bye. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what happened to the third team, but I think it is, you know, it's true that it's very cutthroat at Tencent. And especially even like right now, I think there are even more, people are even more scared of holding on to their jobs in a down cycle. So yeah, yeah, this culture that you're talking about, which is have multiple teams compete internally, that's the grassroots culture that we were talking about earlier, where um, uh, at Alibaba and Baidu, I feel like a lot of the decisions were more top down. Like Jack Ma would have this brilliant idea and they would throw all their money and resources at the project, which sometimes didn't pan out. Whereas Tencent seemed to allow their teams to, there is this term that the executives use where they democratize innovation. So they don't have an innovation mm. center. Every team is in charge of their own innovation. And if, and if they don't swim, they sink. So everyone is on, on alert and al al always tracking competitors. It creates internal cannibalism because very often yeah. people would be encroaching on other people's turf internally. But that that kind of is how WeChat was created because Alan John's team was not in charge of social media. They were a an email product. Um, he had this idea uh, very early in the morning in the wee hours and he wanted to try it out and Pony said, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So Alan Zhang, let's talk about him because he is Zhang Xiaolong. He's a cult figure, a real guru, uh, the object of almost kind of mystical admiration from a lot of young people in the tech world. He was the creator of Foxmail and he built it, you know, single-handedly, this, this really popular mail, email service. And uh, that was, I guess, eventually folded into Tencent. And then he led that team, like you said, doing email and came up with the idea of WeChat. So what is Alan Zhang all about? What made him such an object of, of worship as a product manager? And I mean, because, you know, there's a sort of a cult-like uh, obsession with this idea of what makes a product manager great. Yeah. Right? In China, I know they're always talking about product. Yeah. Well, Tencent is a product manager-driven company. And right. I, I can tell you Alibaba was not always like that, or they're still not like that. It's all about 
you know, for Alan, it's about what what makes sense in the product. And he and uh, I think WeChat is the typical example where he doesn't. WeChat is very um, it stands out compared with all the other products that you have on the market, where they're always spamming you with advertisement with all kinds of noise and for WeChat, it's it's just a clean product. And even with all the yeah, functions, yeah. despite it's a su- being a super app, it's always clean. And you're, you're so it, they really function like a utility app where your text messages are always prioritized and all that extra stuff is neatly designed into the background where it fits uh, user intuition. So for Alan, he he has this whole set of principles, his Ten Commandments that he talks about, mm-hmm. and and those are what what goes into the philosophy of his design. Surprisingly, he's a person who is not very articulate. People who've worked with him um, have flat out say, set told me it's frustrating, absolutely frustrating to work with him because he cannot communicate his thoughts in a coherent fashion. Maybe he's gotten better these days. He has an obsession, but he's not the best at articulating what, what the, like the ideal is that he wants. I, I listened to him give a speech once at WeChat has this annual conference. And I remember sitting there in the audience and this lady who was an investor sitting next to, next to me just turns her head and says, I cannot believe this person is Alan Zhang. How did he create WeChat? Because she was just so not impressed <laughs> by the way he talked. But it was also that same speech where he talked for four hours straight. Yeah, four hours. Four hours. Yeah. It was supposed to be legendary speech. It was supposed to be 20, 20 minutes. minutes and it turned out to a four hour speech. But he managed to hold the intention, attention of everyone uh, in the audience, it was the content that really, really captured the people's attention and not his style of communication. Yeah, sounds like it. So Tencent has been involved in some epic struggles over its lifetime uh, from its early war in messaging uh, with its QQ going up against Microsoft's uh, messenger, which was, you know, I think people don't remember how popular uh, Microsoft's, uh, what was it even called? I can't remember. Windows Messenger before that. MSN. It was called MSN, right? MSN. That was super popular with white collar types back in it the early 2000s. Col- it was super popular with, with kids, even. So, oh, really? my, I remember. Um, so, that's how we communicated with our high school and university crushes back then. <laughs> or we would stalk them. <laughs> we would sense. stalk them and see when they logged on. You know, it, it would generate this beeping sound. And and that's how you stalk people <laughs> who are logged on at 2 a.m. <laughs> so, you know, you go into great detail about, about that and how uh, QQ eventually prevailed there. Uh, but there were also a bunch of other really interesting ones like the Q battle between Zhou Hongyi's Qihu and Tencent's QQ, um, and I, I'll let I'll let readers you know of your book enjoy that that story because it's it's really fun. I mean, Zhou Hongyi is another super colorful character. I mean, he's sort of the Cao Cao of the Chinese internet. Um, if, Absolutely, if understands that reference. Yeah, he's a he's a villain. <laughs> <laughs> And he's he's cunning and and kind of evil, uh, but also but anyway. always portrays himself as the underdog, which is a great yeah. But he's it's such crap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then um, you know they don't win all of their fights, at least not initially. One story that you tell with a really kind of long arc 
uh, begins with the War of the 10,000 Groupon Clones, where Tencent actually partnered up with the original, you know, Chicago-based Groupon itself, uh, but ended up winning, like, years later when it pulls off this great coup with Meituan. Can you talk a little bit about that story? Because it's, it's, it's quite central to the, to the book. Yeah, um, Groupon, when they entered China, they partnered with Tencent. And this was during the days when companies, Groupon and everyone was subsidizing people to go purchase stuff online. And then they were not winning. And in those days, there was a company called Meituan that, that kind of emerged. And it was founded by Wang Xing, who had two very successful companies um, that both got shut down because they were politically sensitive. Uh, one was... Well, first there's Xiaonei, yeah, right? Yeah, there was... Well, right. Xiaonei didn't get shut down. Well, no, yeah. they got acquired, they got but like, he sold it way too cheap. He sold it way, way so too that cheap. So that was a success story. <laughs> and then he started Fanfo, and Fanfo was the Chinese equivalent of Twitter. And... And that got shut down. That service. Yeah, I remember exactly when that happened. That was right after the uh, the the Xinjiang uh, the, the Urumqi riots that happened in in two thousand nine. Yes, that's when they got a spike in us- users. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Wang Xing then moved on to. He said, "I'm gonna go and move into something that's super apolitical, that's completely neutral," uh, which is when he went into Groupon. A huge part of success came from the fact that um, he poached a key lieutenant from Alibaba. And this person was part of the, you know, in Alibaba, they have this which is like a play on yeah. the Communist Party central supply. It's like it translates the, the central supply system uh, army. But that, that that's right. the army that goes and sells sells their their service to merchants. But it's also like a war, a play, um, the Communist Party Iron Army. Because it's Zhonggong. Yeah, yeah. Zhonggong yeah. Um So uh, just, just to be clear, I mean, so these Groupon-type companies required you to have lots of people with boots on the ground running around knocking on merchant stores and making these individual deals. It was an extremely labor-intensive play. Yeah, it was extremely right. labor intensive, which is why Groupon was hiring so aggressively and everyone was burning right. so much money. And it's very funny. I think like in terms of management lessons, there's two things that I learned from this, from the process of reporting this. One is at the time, now it seems really, really intuitive, which is that more listings lead to more transactions. But at the time, um, People didn't know that. So they were all trying to brand this thing as consumer sense, which is what is the consumer going to buy? What is the consumer loving next week, next month, next year? And you'd have people at these companies controlling the front page, controlling the the listicle, right? And Uh uh, Agan, who is the person that Wansing brings along uh, or poaches, Says like that. that Agan, by the way, is what what Forrest Gump is called. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So so he says more listings lead to more transactions, and that was like an epiphany for for them. The other thing was, in terms of having he managed his teams, he would ask the compete because there's many teams, um, units competing internally, and he would uh, ask the the successful team to come in the next uh, morning and they like the success, successful teams 
one of the lessons that they brought in was that if you come in in the morning and do the morning meetings and share your lessons learned from how do you, how do you um, do on the ground promotions, that leads to you know a better team building and team understanding of how to promote the work. And a lot of the star teams or people who are doing well originally refused to take part in that because nobody wants to get up at 6 a.m. in the morning. And right, so he right. said, fine, do whatever you want to do. But if you underperform, then you have to follow this rule once you drop off the grade. And so uh, eventually the, the teams that were having these sharing sessions in the morning and having the morning meetings actually outperform the other ones. And um, it's little things like that that helped them win the fight. There are many, many little things like that that helped differentiate them in the in the longer battle um compare with people who had a lot more money than them so okay this is groupon they moved to yeah. they moved to food um at some point they they made the leap into food delivery services and they were competing with ulama at the time yeah right ulama was an alibaba investment yeah um and and then there was also baidu waimai remember it was so messy i do <laughs> it was so messy there were so many competitors everyone was competing with anyone everyone but i think on the broader scale you had the alibaba camp and then there was tencent who invested in dianping and wang xing was uh, was on alibaba's side but somehow and I tell, talk about this in the book, Tencent and Wang Xing uh, staged a coup. Yeah. And Wang Xing flipped to Tencent's camp and kind of, you know, deserted Alibaba. And and that's kind of what shifted the whole landscape for in terms of food delivery services. Um, it really yeah, did. Yeah. It was a it was a very important business because it was high frequency and also essential to mobile app, mobile internet usage, payment systems. In a sense, it really helped Tencent when the, like partially helped them with the mobile payments war as well. Wang Xin is another one of these interesting characters because he, again, he is just like, he's deeply weird. I mean, he's like another one of these not very obviously charismatic guys. I mean, he's probably on the spectrum, Um <laughs> logical. Yeah, he, he, he values yeah, logic super... a lot. In fact, that's one of the criticisms against him that he values logic and things. Logic. It's kind of like a Spock, I guess. Yeah, yeah, he's Mister Spock for sure, for sure. Uh, wow, that what a. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, one of the things about this book is it's just full of these these colorful characters for sure. Um, so we all know Tencent now because of WeChat, but that is still, like you, we said earlier on, by no means, um, you know, their most profitable product. In fact, it, it, it was, I think it's still loss-making. Um, let's talk about Tencent's might in online games and its partnerships with the major global game studios like Riot, uh, Activision, Blizzard, and uh, Epic, which makes Fortnite, which is like one of the most popular games in, in the world. Um, how did that happen? How did they get into become such a powerhouse in in games? Well, originally, Tencent. Well, Pony was the one who wanted to get into games, and all his co-founders were against it because that's not core to their original strategy. Right. Obviously, in the end, he managed to convince people to give him a try, and they, after a few initial trial and errors, I think Mark Jen, who's the lieutenant, he brought in. 
adopted the right strategy. And their preliminary success or during the desktop era was this whole strategy of importing great IP titles that did well overseas and importing them for Chinese internet users. After Tencent made the leap to mobile internet, their breakout hit was Honor of Kings. Right. And that game was such a huge hit because it attracted so many female users and people who are just not your typical gamer community people would be playing this game and using it as an icebreaker for business, like doing business. So that's the power of this game. It it went beyond its typical reach. You describe a scene where you and your friends play that game like 20 minutes after a session or whatever, right? Exactly. Right after you've got you had dinner out in a restaurant, you sit in the restaurant and four of you or whatever, six of you. Play. Absolutely. And we're all these middle aged people in our 30s who are uh, losers to the game, like typical gamers who have nothing to do with gaming. But we were truly addicted to the game at the time. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these came originally from like Korean models and where, where that model was already very familiar, where the kind of free to play and then pay for item the freemium model was already quite you know entrenched but this was not a common model outside of asia at the time uh, yeah so asia asia pioneered the freemium model it tencent took full advantage or really really brought that model to a whole new level one of the typical success stories is riot games with league of legends right. and this game I think to a certain extent became such a huge hit is because uh, players don't have to pay upfront and it creates a longer lifespan because gamers can buy, you know, they can buy in items. Like if you, if you're really, really invested in the game, then you start decorating your characters, you pay for gemstones to up your power and it creates a longer life shelf. So you don't have to keep doing creating one hit wonders um, that only, you know, have a life shell of a few weeks to a few months. A lot of the gaming titles that they imported have been there in China for years. And that's one of the, I think, like, the freemium model right now is a much more widely adopted model globally as well. Right. And they're lucky that these did have a long shelf life because at one point, and I'm not sure the exact date, uh, suddenly... There was this massive crackdown on the industry, but when did they suspend the issuance of new game licenses for for uh, online game companies in China? I think that was 2018, because and it's relevant to what's happening right now. Because now that now that I think about it, what was happening on the regulatory level at the time was that um, you remember we had um, SARFT and the the state council controlled divisions where they would oversee publishing. And right. I think at the time what was happening was really that there was a power grab at the very high level where, where the party division was taking mo- more control over these sectors. So after the party inserted more control over publishing, they moved on to the internet sector. And the story that we reported last week, and the journal actually reported first, and then we also reported the same thing, is that there what's going to be happening out of the plenum coming this week is that people are expecting that the same mm, same thing is going to happen with the financial sector, hmm. uh, where the, the Communist Party is going to insert or take more control by re- reviving 
this division called the Central Financial Work Commission. So if there's overlapping functions for the securities watchdog or the banking watchdog, some of those powers might be folded into the party division. For outsiders, it might seem it doesn't make sense because the party controls everything. But another way to think about it is that C is inserting his own men into into key sectors of the economy and finance is like one of the last sectors that that you know he's he's going to make a power play on so as before the CBRC and the CSRC still had some autonomy from direct political control they were they were very powerful regulatory agencies but they had still a little bit of of political independence whereas now these Party commissions will take precedence on on important matters of financial regulation. Mm, I I wouldn't right? put that put it that way because the party does control everything. I think it's more about personnel issues. So you had these te- okay. technocrats who grew under different patrons who rise through the ranks and were overseeing these divisions. Now he wants to replace um, his own people into these key key functions of government. You know, for for years, China always making sure that there was a division or at least on the idea that the government and the party were functioning as two different entities was right. was a thing that I don't think that's being emphasized or or maybe going forward that's not a that's not a thing anymore yeah 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 that's what it's looking like to me so let's talk more broadly about you know what befell the internet sector beginning. I guess you know there was an early harbinger of it, you know, with this suspension of issuance of new game licenses. But really, I think most of the world woke up to this in November of of twenty twenty when Ant Financial's IPO was pulled. Uh, so, what is your understanding of what Beijing was trying to accomplish broadly? I mean, because you know what followed on there, of course, was uh, what DD after they went ahead with their IPO in the United States. Suddenly, they found themselves in really big, deep regulatory hot water, supposedly over concerns about data security, where you know they were allowing too much sensitive data to to be out of their hands as a U.S. listed company. And then, of course, the entire after-school tutoring sector just gets you know completely clobbered. What's your understanding of? the big picture thinking of that was coming from the party during this period? Because there's a lot of controversy over what it really was. Yeah, I, I don't think we'll ever get to the, like, get the full picture of what happened. I, I have my theories of where the thinking came from. One, you had these different strings of trends that were happening. One is that on a whole... After these internet companies shifted to the mobile internet age, the amount of data that they harvested became so significant. And a few months ago, actually, the um, government issued this paper for the first time where they acknowledge the status of data as a means of production. And so when you th- if, if, if data is a means of production and the communist has to control key means of production in society um, to ensure its status as a communist state, then uh, of course they have to control this, right? So that's one thinking. Right. The other thing is the, the elevation of C's thinking of common prosperity, where there is a huge gap in wealth in China. And I think common prosperity has clicked with, oh, wide population in China, but it's not necessarily conducive to profits. 
and to a lot of these companies because for years they were generating revenues and like 70, 80% profit. And these companies that were so lucrative and profitable became easy targets for that. That's where the, I think, education crackdown came into play because education before, I would say, the uh, 2000s, it was a public service. And then commercialization of education was not a thing. And in the past few years, with the uprising of startups and capital investment. TAL <laughs> and, and New Oriental. Yeah. Fudal, you name it. Um, yeah. You know, it really became a commercial product and it generated so much anxiety among parents. I think from both an emotional level for, for many of these bureaucrats whose kids were going through this rat race to uh, overall thinking of, you know, C wants to generate population growth, so he needs to lessen the parent anxiety about education. All of that fed into this crackdown. And also a lot of it was ensuring that education, which is core to ensuring that the right train of or the right way of thinking, the right schools of thought for the future generation are still controlled. The narrative is controlled by the party, you know, the, and you have Western capital infiltrating a lot of these companies that play a huge role. They wanted to make sure that that this was still under control, the sector. So that that also fed into this. Yeah, your book talks an awful lot about um, the anxieties that they have now about, you know, the, the capitalization of all these is, industries. And the that, that's the term. Yeah. Disorderly, disorderly yeah, no, expansion no, no, no. of capital. <laughs> the disorderly expansion of capital. So, so let's let's go back to your to Tencent specifically. If there's a story in the history of Tencent, a story you know in its rise uh, that that you would pick out that you find to be the most interesting or surprising to your readers or to people who you've talked to about the book, what would that story be? I find the characters, the personalities behind what creates these companies the most interesting. Yeah. And it's very easy to just um, say, oh, you know, Tencent, Alibaba, these companies became so big because of the firewall, which is true to a certain extent. But the competition that they managed to, uh, that they ex- experienced, and the fact that Western capital played such a huge role in the growth of these companies the fact that the biggest um, pension funds and endowment funds in the U.S. actually are invested um, and closely tied with these internet giants in China, that that whole capital trail is was not obvious to people living on both sides um, of the Pacific, I think. So what what happened for China Internet in the past decade, I think, was a very the past two decades was a very special period in human history where you did have 1.3 billion leapfrogging into the mobile internet age. And you had all the right elements of capital, talent, regulatory environment to create this, this era, which is, you know, gone down known as a golden era for China internet. Yeah. God, I was really lucky to have been in the middle of that. I feel like, uh, you saw the best years. I did. I really, I really do feel like I saw the best years. So, Lulu, if Tencent has an Achilles heel, what would it be? 
What's their big weakness? Well, their big weakness right now is that they're so powerful. Yeah, their size itself, their success is. Their success is a dangerous thing to themselves. I don't. Because you know they, they are now just so integral to to life that the party cannot but get its hands in in you know in more and more into what what their their business is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, they they are if anything going to be victims of their own success. Fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the book. It's called Influence Empire, the inside story of Tencent and China's tech ambition. I I couldn't recommend it more highly. It's just uh it's really well written and fun and uh and it just it it, it is like a history of the golden age. So, uh congrats on that. Thank you. Before we move on to recommendations, I want to offer a quick reminder that uh, if you like the work that we do with the Cynical Podcast, the best thing that you can do is become an Access subscriber. Uh, we're running a promotion right now for just a, a buck for your first month. You can uh, become an Access subscriber. You get uh, the podcast early on Mondays instead of having to wait until Thursday uh, f- through our secret RSS feed that we will send you if you become a an Access subscriber. And of course, you get our daily newsletters, which are just fantastic. So uh, definitely do that, and you'll be helping us out. Uh, we will be—you'll have my eternal gratitude. All right, let's move on to recommendations now. Lulu, what do you have for us? Uh, I wanted to recommend something that's more evergreen, and it's a book that that I've read so many times. <laughs> It's—I um, read it for, for for just to enjoy the lines, and um, you know. I think it'll go down as one of those classical books that you can read over and over again. And it's um, called Gate Talis Reader. It's a collection of profiles that he did for mm. for magazines, including The New Yorker. The reason why it's awesome, I think, is because you know we talk about profiles, and Gate Talis has this point about hating the recorder, where he refuses to sit down and have a interview one on one with. The people that he writes about, he's always observing him in action and looking at putting them into their like their what 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 they're really like in real life. And I think that's a lost, it's a it's a lost craft. Or you know, we don't as journalists we don't do that enough. Um, so yeah, I would recommend. It. I I learned so much about writing and reporting as a journalist from that book. Um, really gave me yeah. Oh, fascinating. He was in Beijing. I think it was like in the year two thousand. I'm going to say, uh, and it was really funny because he was he was living in the China World Hotel. I remember he he uh, was going to come to this party where me and a bunch of my friends were, and I said something like, you know, hey, you know, he's going to be here. Let's not be like all sycophantic and, and obsequious, okay? You know, let's everyone act normal when he gets here. And of course, like he gets there, and then uh, I can't remember what the exact line I said, but what's I say? I asked him a question that was prefaced with, "As a prominent American man of letters," and then everyone just sort of rolled their eyes and groaned at me. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, he was—he's terrific. I love his his work; it's amazing. Uh, you know, uh, his his fantastic book about the New York Times, of course, a, a classic. My recommendation is something completely opposite from that and super super silly. Um, it's the series Kunk on Earth. Uh, it stars Diana Morgan. It's on Netflix. Uh, Diana Morgan plays this character named Philomena Kunk, uh, and who is like this profoundly stupid host of a kind of 
documentary, uh, historical documentary. So it's kind of like, you know, Ali G, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, so she's interviewing these unsuspecting academics, you know, who think they're going to be talking seriously about ancient Greece or ancient Rome. But she asks them these just completely insane, often very vulgar questions in this flawless deadpan. Her deadpan is just amazing that she can say such, you know, ulito, just like nonsensical stuff to them. You definitely have to be in the right mood to enjoy this because it's just so dumb and so... But I, I was seriously... I had like a, a leftover... I still have a little bit of a cough from this cold I had a couple of weeks ago. And I was like having bronchial spasms from laughing so hard. I, I thought I was going to die. So uh, be careful. Don't do not do it if you have bronchitis. But uh, uh, it's it's fun. Conk on Earth. Yeah. yeah. It's so great you recommended it. I, I saw this on Netflix so many times and just was not interested <laughs> but now that you recommended it i i think yeah yeah it's it's you gotta be in the right mood if you just feel like just something completely stupid and silly and and funny uh to get your mind off the world just just it's it's quite enjoyable all right lulu it was so great to reconnect and so great to talk to you about the book absolutely oh so nice to talk to you and so huge congratulations to your success when you said that when you said that you were gonna do a podcast when you go back to the u.s i i wasn't sure that you were serious uh, no, that's what i was doing <laughs> yeah no i i'm really glad that it's worked out like this because uh i enjoy this so much just you know for this very reason because i get to talk to people about their their fascinating work and your book is just fantastic so please everyone grab a copy it's called influence empire the inside story of tencent and china's tech ambition uh, congrats once again, and uh, great to talk to you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at The China Project, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.